0: It's a real pleasure to be back here again. Um, uh, I've only had happy experiences uh, here in this uh, wonderful shop. Um, so, yeah, I'm going. I'll read for a little bit uh, from the beginning of the book, uh, and then I'll happily talk about it or about other things that might come up. The novel, as some of you will know, is set in 2007, largely in upstate New York, hence the title, uh, Saratoga Springs, to be exact, which is a college town, very sweet. New York State college town, and it uh, centers on a family, a 68 year old northern English property developer called Alan Querry, and his two daughters who are uh, 40 uh, and 38. Um, uh, Helen is, um, Vanessa is 40 and Helen is 38. Uh, Helen works in London as a uh, record pr- uh, producer, um, music executive, um, and Vanessa teaches uh, at Skidmore College, uh, which is the college in Saratoga Springs, um, where she teaches philosophy. Um, so I'll just start at the very beginning of the, uh, of, of the book, uh, in which Alan goes to tell his mum Uh, who's pretty aged, uh, that he's going over to the States. He's in fact going over to the States to deal uh, with um, another crisis in the life of his daughter, Vanessa. But he doesn't quite tell his mother that. Um, And uh, we'll go from there. First, he would have to go and see his mother. He would tell her something about Vanessa, but not everything, of course. The home six miles along a favorite road was a formidable old place with that gray strictness of the North he loved. But now it looked abandoned. Everything was in wintry abeyance. Four years she'd been living there and he was still never sure how to announce himself. It was also ridiculously expensive. He could no longer afford it. What did she, what did he get for that money? Two small rooms rather than one extra space for the dark massing of a lifetime's heavy old furniture. And maybe she got two biscuits with her tea on Fridays. He made his way through two huffing fire doors, which bottled a weekend's stale yeast, school food. Outside his mother's room, Clarendon, he gathered himself a bit like a clown, pulling up his trousers, dusting down his coat and entered with a light knock. The television was off, thank goodness. She was asleep in the chintz chair his father had used as the family throne, issuing directives and decrees from behind his newspaper. She was tiny, sunken, some of her teeth were out. The old music hall joke, her teeth are like stars, they come out at night, but it was early afternoon. As she breathed, something seemed to catch in her throat. She'd always had a large nose and now she seemed to be reducing around it, shrinking down to bone, the nose tenacious, final, root-like. I have hers, so this will be mine, right enough. He knelt beside her and whispered. She opened her eyes and said with a slight affront, When did you get here, Alan? As if he'd been spying on her just a second ago. Fetch me my teeth by the side of the bed, please in, in the glass. She turned away from him to insert the plate. Now we need to call for tea and biscuits. They'll bring it if you ask. As a child in a lower middle class suburb of Edinburgh, she'd made herself unpopular at school by affecting an English or maybe Anglo-Scots pronunciation. Since his dad's death, her accent seemed to have moved up the ranks again by another notch or two. It usually had the effect of making her sound slightly irritable. In truth, these days she sounded like the mistress, but looked more like the servant. Short, bent, too modestly or shabbily dressed today. You don't need to wear this shawl thing, do you? He said, lifting it over her shoulders. Certainly not. I just put it on for my nap. Thank you. You look very tired. You know, you can't burn your candle at both ends. A Roman candle, maybe. He just had his 68th birthday. How are you? All right, I suppose, but this English view isn't my landscape, of course, she added, gesturing at the window with splendid authority. Well, it's not a bad one, he said, looking at the line of leafless trees and the icy hills. He was paying for that English view. And we've been over this. You don't want to live with me. You need your independence, though it would be a lot cheaper if you did move in with us. Absolutely not. (sighs) I took in your grandmother, as you perfectly well know, and it made my 50s a complete blank. All I did day after day was look after her. I'll never do that to you. In that house, the two women had seemed to detest each other with stealthy expertise. Each made the other immovably depressed. But you want me to visit, and I want to visit you. He took her hand. You're no good to me three hours away up in Scotland, even though you have your own landscape there. He said it gently. The tea arrived, carried by a very red, teenaged boy. He offered a biscuit to both of them and then left, making sure to take the full plate with him. Wartime rations round here, said his mother. The young man appeared again. Mrs. Querry," he said, I'm supposed to remind you that the residents are gathering at 3.30 in the Sun Lounge for the winter flu vaccination. It's, you know, the booster for them that missed it first time round. Need any help? No, I have my son. Thank you. The room could have been a lot worse high ceilings with ornate moldings, Roman laurels, almost textured wallpaper with chips in it, like silk, slivered almonds, though, in fact, these always made him think of splinters caught under a child's skin All painted a pleasant cream and parental things. He'd known all his life, a reproduction watercolor of Durham Cathedral, an antique mirror that you couldn't really see yourself in. It looked valuable, but he knew it wasn't a cushion whose faded lilac cover bought by him at Heels, London on the Tottenham Court Road, had not been replaced in 30 years at least. It was all pretty good, or as good as can be when one's whole life has been reduced to souvenirs of selfhood. It was a nice place, but he couldn't afford it any longer. She looked at him with her pale blue eyes, Vanessa's. This whole place is up in arms. My next door neighbor lost a hearing aid yesterday. She put it in some tissue paper on her bedside table and the cleaner threw it out by mistake. She thought it was a bit of rubbish. And in the room that's just two doors down the hall, Mary Binet is furious because she likes to talk French to another woman here who can understand it. She's the only woman who can. And now Mary's been told to stop talking French by the staff. Apparently someone else, we all assume it's one of the residents, and I have a very good idea who, has compla- complained that they're speaking a secret language to exclude everyone else. I'll miss it, I couldn't understand what they were saying, but I liked hearing the French. And now the manager is leaving at the end of the month. She's only been here for six months. She's Czech, I think, a nice woman, though for some reason she hates to be thought of as Polish. He interrupted her. Ma, I have to go to America for a week. America? Well, well, on business? She'd always enjoyed enunciating these words, so he spoke them back to her with finality. On business. Well, don't get caught up in anything caught up in anything it's a dangerous place from what I hear there was that terrible thing with the towers you'll go and see Vanessa she's always wanted you to visit her in in that place in Saratoga Springs yes I wanted to say sarsaparilla I will see her and Josh oh good Lord courage there he's far too young and certainly not good enough for her you never even met him yes that's two of us but I do have a telephone here you know I get reports And I was about to say, before you interrupted me, that Vanessa isn't getting any younger, is she? Ma, I can't keep up with you. Now you're giving him your blessing. Well, why shouldn't the poor thing have a boyfriend? Maybe Josh is the one, and when they marry, you'll blame him for taking Vanessa away. Oh, Vanessa was already away, well away. She did her PhD there, not here, after all. That was the beginning. Silly girl. It was a shame she didn't come back at Christmas. I suppose she'd rather spend time with her beau. It was a moment or two of old-fashioned silence the tick of his mother's fancy carriage clock his gift Alan love can you help me to the sunroom i want to get there early while the needle is still sharp they smiled at each other and he helped her up and walked beside her as she gripped the mouse-grey tubular Zimmer frame a marvel of engineering as strong as a weightlifter but as light as the bones of, of a very old lady with wheels on the front and two splayed yellow tennis balls stuck on the back legs. These dragged along the carpet as the aged couple, mother and son, moved slowly down the corridor. Now I'm just going to skip as the uh, next chapter just sort of sets up Alan's sort of posh house in uh, Northumberland and how, how he's done well for himself, but also how in some way he's, he's different from... Uh, His neighbors, who tend to be landed gentry, uh, whereas his origins are uh, working class from Durham and Newcastle. Um, And then the next chapter is Chapter 4, which I'm just going to read from, and Chapter 5, very short chapters, just about uh, the two daughters, Vanessa and Helen, and their differences. Vanessa and Helen, Helen and Vanessa. Vanessa was the elder by two years, born just after 10 o'clock on the evening of the 30th of July, 1966, the day England beat West Germany in the World Cup, the one and only time. You couldn't forget that day, those jubilant hours, the black and white television bringing forth its frail, (coughs) unlikely pictures, and Cathy walking stiffly around the sitting room, pressing her hand into her lower back, her groans mixed now in his memory with the roars from Wembley Stadium, and there. A little later, Vanessa was jaundiced and moist, furrowed with folds, most loved because she was the first, only the best for her, a lucky girl. But as she got older, she became harder to embrace, awkward, softly distant. She didn't or wouldn't fit, like Alice in Wonderland, either too tall or too short. It was the divorce that changed everything. After Cathy walked out, Vanessa withdrew, the girls dealt differently with that catastrophe. Always fierce, Helen sided with her father and accused her mother who had, after all, left Alan for another man of being obsessed with sex. She was only 13, poor thing. Vanessa was different. She took no sides, just went quiet, seemed to absorb all the consequences of the event and disappeared from sight. She was always upstairs in that damn bedroom of hers where she lay on her bed and read Massively, widely, seriously, novels, poetry, philosophy, feminism, even ecology. He never heard of most of her authors. Sometimes he thought she chose the most obscure people she could just to spite him. In happier times, Alan and Kathy had loved to observe the differences between their daughters. How often in the evening, when other conversation faltered, the two parents talked about the girls, the kind of fanatical wonderment, monotonous but somehow never boring that revolutionaries must lavish on their plans for the future. Helen was exuberant, playful, disobedient, physical. Vanessa was shy, gentle, slow to anger, studious, very private. For a while, these differences seemed provisional, part of the scramble of growing up. Everything was potential. But eventually, so Alan discovered, the child's feet stopped growing. Her trousers don't need to be let out anymore. Her handwriting has the form It will have for the rest of her life. Her bedsheets bear the occasional but unmistakable blood blood bloodstains of new adolescence. And as if suddenly, while you were not properly attending to the matter, or so it seemed to him now, while you were too busy with your own foolish crises, your daughter became an adult. And those qualities that had seemed malleable were now hardened and fixed. Both girls were full of will, but while Helen's willfulness seemed to bring her pleasure, Vanessa's brought her unhappiness. She seemed so keen to mess up her own chances. That was the phrase he kept on reciting to himself in those days. Why did she want to mess up her own chances? Why didn't Van invite any school friends over to the house? Didn't she have any friends? She said she wanted to put herself forward for the school debating society, but it never happened. It was the same with the school orchestra, the school play. All her pastimes were solitary, reading, playing the piano on the flute, listening to music, writing poems poem is mostly full of despair and lament one of them was especially horrifying it seemed to be about some unrequited crush on a boy and it ended with a line he would never forget about wanting to jump from a high wall onto a hard pavement these poems greatly alarmed her parents when they discovered them in a notebook hidden under van's mattress later a student at Oxford Vanessa decided that she would give away all her possessions A friend was so worried about her stability that she reported her to the university health services who contacted Alan and Kathy. Helen spoke so easily to adults, confident in her ability to charm. Vanessa held back in a gesture that seemed to combine, worst of all worlds, judgment and fear. Helen was naturally joyful. Van needed to be reminded of that category of human experience. And one day, You realize that your children's differences are not only temperamental and biological, but also moral and political. That each has a very distinct worldview. One day, he remembered it well. You witness your eldest daughter, now 17, firmly lecturing her younger sister about the misery of life and the cruelty of all human beings, of all life. Holding up a book her father had no idea she possessed, George Riley Scott's History of Torture. Waving it around and saying, read this, read this, Helen, and you won't have any doubts about it. Is that how it had been? Her childhood of torture? Helen and Vanessa, Vanessa and Helen. Vanessa did her doctorate at Princeton because I'm stifled in Oxford and they'll pay for me to be at Princeton and they actually want me there. And had been seven years teaching philosophy at Skidmore College. There was now a faint suggestion, like a breeze carrying a smell of rot with it, of a career stagnating, of unfulfilled promise. There had been a few papers, one of them which Alan understood to be about how to combine French philosophy and English analytic philosophy in order to make a great new product, like combining French grapes and English soil to make that questionable wine they were now producing in Kent, did fairly well (laughs) and bounced around the conference circuit. But now she was 40, 40 and there'd been no big book and no advancement. The same faculty profile and atrocious snapshot sat on the departmental website for all these years. These academics, thought Alan. Vanessa's beautiful dark hair pulled harshly tight at the back into a scholarly bun, her lovely intelligent face obscured by hideous clock-sized spectacles, and that fixed bibliography with the eternally dangling promise of four essays on personhood forthcoming. (laughs) Alan couldn't imagine her in Saratoga Springs, New York. She told him that Skidmore College was one of the best private institutions in America, and she told him something about the town, about its history as a holiday resort, A 19th century spa with healing waters. The Baden-Baden, the Vichy of upstate New York. It was full of parks and grand hotels. People still gambled and raced horses there. And there were handsome, wide streets. Five years ago, he was reading Diamonds Are Forever. He'd been rereading all the Ian Fleming books on a whim and was chuffed to see that James Bond and Felix Leiter visited the famous horse track at the very same Saratoga Springs. But he didn't go to see her. She came to him. And he imagined that she came to Northumberland every summer because she was keen to escape America or New York State. In summer, in Northumberland, the sheep made their pleated, laugh-like noises and rubbed their wool onto the dry stone walls. And the straight old Roman roads glittered in the broad, gentle light. And there was really no better place to be on earth. Last summer, she'd come for the whole of August. He liked that very much. He left her alone for a few days, went down to London. And when he came back, there she was, still there sometimes in her old bedroom, lying diagonally on the bed in her usual way, reading a book, sometimes in the sitting room or outside on the lawn in a deck chair, smoking, always with a book and a pen in hand, wearing those curious baggy trousers. Unlike Helen, Vanessa seemed to need very little. She wanted to be at home, to be intermittently alone and to be able to work, little else. From the back door, he could see her in the deck chair, notebook open, pen in hand, cigarette packet and lighter on the grass beside her coffee cup. (coughs) She got a bit heavier in the last year. Perhaps the curious wafting trousers were hiding that. She slouched in the chair, her tongue slightly protruding. The notebook was balanced on her knees, and with her right hand, she intensely twirled her hair as if twisting thoughts from her brain. She rarely wrote anything. Fascinating the ratio of thought to frequency of writing. She was like a trumpeter playing Haydn in a symphony, picking up the instrument only every 100 bars or so. Aphorisms maybe, philosophical fragments, It would be funny if she were just writing jokes or writing a letter or doodling aimlessly. And although he knew he shouldn't, he would go out and disturb her, offer her some more coffee, ask her if she needed anything from Corbridge, tell her one of his jokes to match those in her notebook. Had she really tried to do herself some harm in Saratoga Springs, put aside her life? He kept coming back to this image like a half-finished crossword puzzle. After Vanessa ran away from boarding school, Alan and Kathy decided that she should see someone about her depression and anxiety. They found a child therapist in Newcastle who was attached in some way to the teaching hospital there. She was hard to find, he remembered. No one had therapy in Newcastle in 1982. And Vanessa did not want to go, had to be almost dragged into the grim office on Percy Street. Worse, much worse, the therapist, her last name was Lennon, like John, insisted that she wanted to see the whole family for the first session, all of them, even Helen. Alan and Kathy had been separated for eight months and had stopped communicating except to talk about matters relating to the girls. Alan sat there in a fury as Dr. Lennon told them that she was going to use a tape recorder. She found it useful to listen to them talking, to detect after the session their recorded hesitations and evasions and weaknesses and lies. Of course, she didn't put it quite like that. But that was the gist. Cherche the parents, find out how the parents were to blame and stitch them up and they were to blame. Of course they were. Poor Vanessa, she cried while the little gap-toothed wheels of the Memorex cassette squeakily rotated, while Alan and Kathy tried to explain how hard things had been for both girls. And yet, Helen did not cry, did she? Dr. Lennon then had four sessions with Van on her own, and when it was all over, she called in the despicable parents and explained that she couldn't, of course, share any details of what Vanessa had told her just what had Van told her, but she could certainly inform them that in her opinion, their elder daughter was extremely anxious and severely depressed. The therapist recommended that Vanessa write about her fears and sadness in creative form. Alan didn't mention that Van was already doing that. Van did get better, happier, more fulfilled in her academic work, drawn, drawn out by the task of serious philosophy. The last two years of school and the first year at Oxford were comparatively serene. Everything was comparative in Van's case. But then she collapsed again in her final year at Oxford and tried to give away all her possessions to her friends and had to be brought home by Helen. And at that time, she spoke of being pursued by what she called her demons. Had she intended to harm herself at Oxford? Was she thinking of suicide? He could hardly bear to think, let alone speak that word. He had to look away from it, as from the sun. And perhaps it was true, he now thought. But because he looked away from that word, he had also looked away from the other word, depression. He looked away. And by the time Van was in her mid-twenties, Alan had decided that most of Vanessa's problems were not really chronic, but largely related to her solitude. She never seemed to have a boyfriend. She read books all day, hard, systematically unhelpful books, as he saw it. She took no exercise, never went for a walk or a bike ride. Ma wasn't correct when she said that if Josh were the one, Alan would blame the lad for taking his daughter away. Not at all. He welcomed Josh with relief. The news about a boyfriend was received as another parent might receive news about a child's new job or first house. And the truth was, Vanessa had been much happier in the last months since she and Josh started going out in June. She was full of new projects and resolve as he saw in the summer when she sat happily in the deck chair, carefully answering her philosophical riddles. He tried hard to keep this summary Vanessa in his mind, not the girl who disappeared for two days when she was 15 or refused to get out of bed for what seemed like a whole month when she was 21, or who very nearly abandoned her PhD four years later and spoke seriously about opening an organic restaurant in Corbridge, or who was about to turn down the office, offer of the assistant professorship at Skidmore and come home to England without a job because what's the point of teaching philosophy? What he strongly remembered today was walking with Vanessa when she was five or six past the medieval church in the village, the church that flew a red on white St. George's flag from its tower. In the northern wind, the flapping cloth pulled away from the metal pole like a young soldier eager to dash into battle. That day it was at half-mast and little Vanessa, happy Vanessa, asked him what that meant. Someone prominent had died, he said several years afterwards when they went past the church and the flag was back at full mast (coughs) Van would look up and announce with satisfaction no one died today thank you Uh, I'll be more than happy to take questions about uh, the novel or about other aspects of uh, writing Um, Either writing fiction or writing about fiction, um, too too related, but it turns out very different activities. Um, so uh, happy to to uh, talk. Uh, if no questions are forthcoming, I will I will, as uh, Robert Robertson put it, interview myself. Uh, you kind of yeah set up my first question, which was going to be essentially how you turn off the critical voice when you do the creative process, or do you turn off the critical voice, or how you kind of navigate those waters of being both at once, or yeah. at one at one time, and then not—I find it difficult, uh, and difficult enough that, that in, some, in some regard, I probably stopped doing it. Um, I guess it's—you know—it's—it's it's such a constituent part of me now, and has been overwhelmingly my writing life. Right? It hasn't been writing fiction, uh, so it could be said—it it could be said that I just don't—I don't have some of the. You know some of the muscle memory, even that that you know a working novelist might 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 have. So I probably don't don't turn it off, um, and I I tell myself that um, that isn't necessarily such a such a bad thing uh, in the sense that I can at least second guess myself and, and and usefully edit myself. All that sort of stuff come does come in, in handy. So I think that would be the that that would be the short answer that I that I probably don't. That i don't turn it off, I suppose the one thing I, I I did try to do while writing it, which was a very interrupted process. I have to say that that didn't help. Um, but one one thing I did the distinction I tried to make was I tried not to think I tried not to think about audience uh, too much. necessarily when you're writing journalism, even if you're not thinking about an audience, you're structurally built into a relationship with the audience. You're writing it for an editor who's going to see it in you know four days time uh, not in the case of Mary Kay who would see it in about ten months time but um, <laughs> but you know so you're writing it for for, for for a set of eyes very quick sort of temporarily uh, local and then you're aware that you know a, a week later it's going to be in print and a pe- you know, certain body of people are going to see it a much uh, larger and much more um, reliable body uh, than it will ever Read this novel, for, for instance. Um, so that's all built into the journalistic relationship, and I think it's. Ve- I do think, for me at least, it's very important when writing a, a, a completely different kind of thing that I'm not considering the audience. And indeed, I don't see how you could be, because it takes long enough that the audience has to uh, fade away a bit. So that would be the. That's the distinction I did try to, to to observe, and I think an important one.
3: Thank you for that. That very generous answer to that question. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if I can ask you yes. to flesh it out a bit more. Um, I really enjoyed your reading. I, I know your Thank practical you. work very well, but not your fictional writing. Yeah. When you um, describe things like Alan's mother's nose and how, how the bones are decaying around it, or yeah. the engineering feet in her trolley, or yes. um, his daughter sometimes lying on the bed, sometimes in the garden, I can almost hear you as the critic yeah. talking about that. Yeah. Uh, and imagine what you might say about it as, as illuminating moments. Yeah. Uh, but are those thoughts going on in your mind as you write that, or, or there
0: not? There probably are a bit, and of course, the, you're right to pick, up, pick that out. I mean, for various reasons, that that's not unfraught, of course. One important reason in which it's not unfraught is that, um, as you could tell from the narration, quite a bit of the book, at least, except when it's in Vanessa's head or, or Helen's, Head is from the eighty percent of it is from Alan's perspective, so there is that slight awkwardness uh, that I've certainly written about as a critic quite a bit, and sometimes I've prosecuted rather hard. Which is, you know, does someone like Alan, who's a educated person but not a literary person, does he sort of notice these things in the same way that I do? This used to occupy me more than it more than it does now. When I wrote *How Fiction Works*, I was really concerned about it, um, too concerned, I think. Um, and actually, there was a um, an, an LRB contributor, uh, Thomas Jones, uh, reviewed it in the Telegraph, I think. *How Fiction Works*, and said, "I don't know why he's always banging on about this tension in fiction between you know what the author sees and what the character sees. Why is it such a big deal? Um, of course the." Of course, the character sees more than the than the, than the actual person in the street would really see. That's that's the contract. Um, and I I remember reading that and thinking, sort of feeling a relief in a way. So uh, maybe I'm just thoroughly self-serving. Um, but um, yeah, of course, I'm I'm I, I there's a there's a to go back to the earlier question. There's a part of me that I that that I probably will never be able to switch off, which is which is assessing some of the details you mentioned in the way that I would as a critic, okay? Is that good? Does that work? Uh, is that the right thing? But of course, writers are doing this. I mean, non-critical minded writers are doing this the whole time too, or they, or they wouldn't be thinking properly about their, about their work. So I, yeah, I, I, I just, I, I feel it to be the part of the, uh, part of the basic uh, difficulty. Um, and I, and I did specifically didn't want the <sighs> I wanted to write as, as, as I would write, but I didn't want the out that you get with certain stylists, you know, with, with sort of Bellow making his professors, you know, brilliant notices so that they can notice up to the level of Bellow or Nabokov making his murderers, you know, giving his murderers fancy prose styles and so on. Um, that's always seemed, yeah, I didn't want to do that. But I guess I, neither did I want to entirely forego that noticing eye.
2: What I, wa- what I want to ask is, is as a critic, of which I've read almost everything you've written... Yeah. Um, ..so prepare to be flattered for a second. Um, it seems to me that uh, sentence by myself. sentence, as a sentence maker, you yeah. are one of the best <laughs> writers of, of critical prose, perhaps ever. Um, let's set aside Samuel right. Johnson. Oh, but I I'm wondering, are to a certain degree, are you going... Yeah. are you going one-on-one with the writers are you are you setting a bar because it must be you must be conscious of your sentence making mm-hmm. as, a, as a critic mm-hmm. um and some of the writers that you're that, that you're um that you're reviewing perhaps aren't as gifted a sentence maker as yourself uh-huh. and i do there may be not may not be a question mark at the end of this statement but i'm i'm Struggling to, to get there. But, but it seems to me that there is something about how you've chosen to write your criticism, which is about sentence-making. Yeah. And I think implicit, when I read, when I read your criticism, mm. I'm thinking, if you don't mention the other person's sentence-writing, you're sort of saying, it's not up. It doesn't reach my bar. Yeah. That you're, uh, and, that's, and I'm, of course, you're a very generous critic As well, but there is a toughness yeah. about what you think or what you regard as the, the right level of sentence making that a writer must hit.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll take I'll 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 take the flattery. Uh, thank you for that. But I'll take the flattery partly because because I don't rest easily. In other words, you're absolutely right to. Interestingly, this goes back to the, the early question. You, you're, you're absolutely right to put your finger on this sentence-making thing. But that is an aspect of my writing that I increasingly dislike and would like to escape from. Um, Can I just say that when you read, I I felt actually the sentence-making was a little little softer. A little less conscious than I'd expected and and from the, the Book Against God. Right, definitely. Book Against God was overwritten. And it's not, so this does go back to, in a way to, to the, the how fiction works thing. And it's, it's clear to me now that, I, that, that, that in that book, I was trying to work out something that is that is my inheritance. Put talent aside, you know, we all have varying degrees of it, right? But I think now that I'm old enough to look back properly, I can see that the, my particular inheritance has to do with having a very musical background and having music before literature so it was thoroughly put god away i mean god there was too much god but there was never too much music so there was lots of music and that was really what my existence was from the age of sort of 8 to 13. it was that particular indentured servitude of the cathedral chorister it's essentially like being in a music conservatory and i was also doing two uh, musical instruments uh, in addition to the singing so really my life was was music then Literature came along, as it probably was always going to come along, and music was not an option anyway for professionally. I just wasn't good enough at, at, at those things. But now I could see that really all along, I've been worrying away at this question of how musical a novel should be. How musical should fiction be? Which, if you put it in another f- way, is how formalist should the novelist be, right? That that old sort of Iris Murdoch thing of the crystalline versus the journalistic. Right? I don't like the journalistic uh much and I tend to fault that for not enough sentence making. But the crystalline is not journalistic enough. And we all feel that too. We know when we're when we're experiencing fiction, maybe my first novel being an example, that's somehow overwritten. It would be intolerable. I mean, I'm glad you heard voice in a way picking up and taking up the the, you know occupying some of the slack I increasingly go back to this thing this very wise thing that that Virginia Woolf said I know I've quoted it about four times but you know um, it makes it easy when I write it in the New Yorker because they don't the fact checkers don't have to go outside the magazine to uh (laughs) to to find the facts they just go to my last piece and say oh he's using that one again um but this Virginia Woolf quote about um that she said in a review I mean of all people she said it she said, but the novelist doesn't write in sentences. The novelist writes in chapters and uh, paragraphs and chapters. And what she was clearly saying there, although she didn't expand on it, is there's a thing called novelistic form, which is the rhythm of a whole inquiry. And that takes up a whole book. And, and my quarrel, I'm sure it's shared by plenty of people in this audience, with certain kinds of uh, Flaubertian formalism, most obviously occupied currently by someone like martin amos is this absurd idea that you know an entire 12 volume sequence is somehow pulled apart because there was one duff sentence in volume six that's not what it's about if if a real novelistic inquiry which had which was done in paragraphs and chapters was proceeding it couldn't be unraveled by the fact that someone says you know that the writer at one point said he put down his glass and 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 sneezed you know it's like. So what? That seems the and and that's the only way I can, it's a real division, and it might be a division in you, interestingly, uh, to pick up from the certain emphasis in your question, but I find it a real division. Like I mean, I'll, I'll read a book where I'm very excited by every, as it were, every sentence or every other sentence, and then I'll read... And it's not just because it's in translation. I'm reading this Norwegian writer Dag Solstad at the moment, where, who I love. But if you were going through it sentence by sentence, it's absolutely atrocious. <laughs> I mean, I wish I had the book here with me. Actually, I'd read it out to you. It's like he uses the word, verb "pop up" four times in the first two pages. You know, uh, T. Singer would stop every so often in the middle of the road when this traumatic thought popped up in his consciousness, and then three, three lines later, whenever this thought popped up in his consciousness, what is going on? This is sort of you know, Martin Amos with well, the pens are not quite, not quite at that level, I don't, don't think. But, you know, you can see how it's a, this is an ethical, this is the old thing of aesthetics versus ethics, right? It can't just be down to, uh, it's, why, it's why Jonathan Franzen was completely wrong in that Harper's essay to say, you know, blah, 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 but the sentence will save us. The sentence won't save us. It's got to be something beyond the sentence. Uh, it's that lovely thing in, Uh, To the lighthouse, you know, Lily Briscoe is trying to get hold of the thing itself before it has been made anything. That's the real, uh, I would say, metaphysical um, quest uh, of uh, of art. And that somehow goes beyond and before the sentence. (coughs) Which? Uh, To the lighthouse. Uh, Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, uh, Oh, yeah. So my favorite of his books, he only has four or five in English, is called Shyness and Dignity. Uh I truly recommend that book, Shyness and Dignity. Fabulous. It's about a school teacher who's taught the same uh, Ibsen text. I mean he's got a good sense of humor. He's he's taught the same Ibsen play for the last 25 years, and he comes into school one day in Oslo and he's, you know, he's miserable and the kids aren't responding. And he suddenly realizes there's a there's a parenthesis a stage direction which is something uh, it, it's attached to something a woman says uh, about a lover and the st- and the parenthesis is something like voice breaking uh trembling something like. That. he realizes he'd never noticed it properly or attended to it until this moment and he starts talking wildly about it and the kids are absolutely they respond as if nothing's changed right but for him everything's changed and he gets so enraged with them that he walks out of the classroom, uh, makes a fool of himself in the in, in the uh, school yard and realizes he's said farewell to his job, quits the school, uh, and basically the rest of the novel is him walking back home and thinking over the ramifications of what he's done and some of the history that that had got him to this point. It's a wonderful, wonderful book and it probably doesn't have in that Formalist sense it probably doesn't have a more than you know five decent sentences in it I mean like jewel sentences. No um, Yeah
2: um, Considering your reputation and the fact that you wrote a book called how fiction works. Yeah, uh, you're you know no doubt aware that Many critics especially would read you with you know an eyebrow raised in the sense that you're a critic oh, two who's right. writing about novels yeah. um, so in that context uh, can you speak to risk-taking and the, um, yeah. what I imagine was that maybe uh, inclination to just do it right and just get away with it in a way. Yeah. Make the sentences good, yeah. do it all properly without taking huge risks uh, that would you know, elevate you yeah. know, a novel. Because the best novels, of course, take huge risks. Yeah. Um, so was there an inclination to just do it and just publish it and hope that there wasn't anything terrible?
0: Yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's right. That's that's exactly right. Um, well, here's the thing. Uh, I think there probably was that inclination on on my part, but it didn't do any good anyway because they all shat on it. So it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> in other words, uh, yes, I could have I, I I could have done a sort of six hundred uh, page uh, thing where I was really uh, where I guess in some ways I was risking risking more. Although I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, and in many ways, this is a a fairly quiet and uh, reasonably, apart from the amount of interiority, a reasonably conventional, conventionally written, conventionally sort of plotted book that takes place over six days. But I suppose I took the risk of pleasing myself. That's to say, I followed particular interests and a particular way of writing, um, and it would seem, at least from a number of the uh, of the reviews, uh, I'm thinking of one in the uh, uh, in the Observer uh, where the Critics said, probably not wrongly, actually, um, that uh, the characters didn't really seem to do anything, and they were just spent their time thinking, and that the thoughts were, uh, I think the phrase was, uh, laughably well organised. Um, fine, but it so it could be speaking very selfishly or somewhat narcissistically. It could be from, from just talking about me, from my point of view, that 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 whatever I do, whether it's wildly ambitious or fairly quiet, is there's going to be a problem just that it's a critic, right? I think the, it was something at the Evening Standard had something like, um, well-known critic uh, t- takes a turn as an author as if, as if somehow the last 20 years had nothing to do with writing. It's like, you know, ballet dancer takes a turn at being an author. Rock musician takes a turn. Blah, 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 blah. But anyway, um, that notion of sort of that the, the, the critic is taking a turn as an author is I think going to be the main problem irrespective of what I uh, uh, of what I do, um, but I was going to say a little uh, earlier, just that I hate using this phrase as I've got older. But I like the idea of something that isn't that some, somewhat more quietly ambitious. I, I, I'm, I'm drawn to uh, I'm drawn to uh, fiction that has a certain tact and that lets the reader slowly catch up, uh, as opposed to a certain kind of fiction we know what that is, uh, that announces itself very stridently from the beginning as, uh, as, a, as a major, and ambitious uh, uh, piece of work, uh, say like uh, Richard Powers, right? right? There's no way, no one's gonna say about a 600 page book, I'm talking about his latest, uh, that's about trees and three generations, blah, 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 blah immigration to America, that it's, it's not ambitious. So you could say from his point of view, he hasn't taken any risks. Uh, a risk for Richard Powers would be to write a book like that. Um, and so I hereby challenge you, Richard Powers, to write upstate, not your latest 600-pager about trees.
3: Recently, I asked quite a few people I know if they had a favorite review, not a review of their favorite book, but if yeah. the reviews that had changed the way they saw books or a particular book, and a lot of yeah. them said you, so more praise. Huh. Um, and I wondered if you had ever thought about, and if you've done this already, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, thought of doing like a how reviews work or how because huh. I think that's writing too and that's a craft and
2: you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice idea. Um, and thank you for saying that. Uh, of course, I do spend a bit of time thinking about how reviews mm-hmm. work. Although mainly I just spend time, you know, working at reviews, uh, uh, which is doubtless less fun. It it is of course, and 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 that's how um, that's how most of us are going to read criticism if anyone reads criticism anymore which I doubt but but I mean that's where it is Uh, and I suppose in that regard even though you know how fiction worked was a book written uh, as a book it I suppose came from the same space Uh, that's to say or it's talking to the same readership uh, which is the sort of readership who would read review who read reviews and isn't an academic um, readership and 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 I suppose I've always thought of criticism as I mean, the criticism I love and the criticism that I started reading before I went to university and read while I was at university, in addition to the academic stuff, was always this, was essentially reviews, right? Um, you know, if you look at, well, I, you know, I think that you mentioned Samuel Johnson, uh, but, you know, all that, all, all that great stuff sort of Hazlitt and Virginia Woolf's essays for sure, you know, remember that. 10 years, I think, before Wolf writes, puts a pen to paper fictionally, she's been working as a jobbing reviewer uh, anonymously uh, for the TLS. That's where she, where she began. That's how she began. So yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a way of being that I take very seriously. Whether whether there's much to be said about how it works, I don't know, because how, how it works, of course, is changing so massively. I mean, just at the sort of institutional. Level that, that increasingly people just n- reading it online and then probably sim- skimming it in a ways that maybe they didn 't uh, previous i don 't know um, but anyway, thank you for the question
3: so to uh, follow up from the earlier distinction yep. you drew between sentence making and novelistic inquiry uh, this isn 't just a novel about a philosopher it 's also an intensely philosophical novel itself, yes. so at least three things that I picked up in my reading, uh, three concerns. Uh, one was the, the nature of parenthood or fatherhood um, as something that goes on throughout life and it's not just, it doesn't just end when your children leave the home. Uh, and, yeah. uh, but also the fact that Alan, um, as the novel open to this, is a, is a son as well as a father. And I saw a potential yeah. link there to essays you'd written about being a son and being a son-in-law as well. The second would be the nature of happiness, uh, why yeah. some people are happy, why they aren't, this yeah. provocative idea that we have a sort of fixed supply of happiness. Mm. Different people have a different supply. Mm. And then and, and thirdly, um, you, you 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 mentioned the criticism that not much happens in the book. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a real sense of uh, impermanence. Alan Query says uh, think since the start of the book that his the House of Query is built on sand very recall correctly. Yeah. And um whether it's Helen's Korean and music, Vanessa and Josh's relationship, all the sort of narrative tension comes from the, the sense that things aren't as stable as they they might look, and then there's, there's a profound feeling of, of, of impermanence. And I think there's been a sort of misapprehension about your criticism uh-huh. over the years that you're more concerned with brilliant details or serious noticing than with the novelist argument. was, mm-hmm. was actually, uh, I think a lot of your criticism does deal with, with those things. And right. the Jenny Oppenbeck, for example, is uh, quietly ambitious, but also novelistic inquiry that you've, that you've championed. Yeah. Uh, and I, was, I was wondered if you could speak a bit more to how you saw these philosophical arguments Mm. In this novel, and to this novel as a novel of inquiry.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. I certainly do like both. The, I don't want to keep everyone, but so it's almost time to go. But I certainly do like the both the, the comic and I suppose the tragedy comic uh, premise uh, that someone who's employed to teach philosophy doesn't really know how to live. Um, shouldn't be surprised, should it? Um, I mean, you know, we can't we can't think ourselves into or read ourselves into. Uh, into happiness, and if an unhappy person came to you, your first response wouldn't be, "Well, just go away and read some Aristotle uh, or bone up on Heidegger," you know. Um, but but clearly, that's a nice thing that I wanted there there in the book. And you're absolutely right that 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 I'm very much pursuing in the book something that I think occupies us all and occupies any parent, particularly as you see your children as you see your children getting older what you see of course is what you can't control and what you could never control i mean you actually thought you could but that was an illusion and you of course also see what is in what is inherited uh right and it could be sometimes it's a wonderful surprise like oh this kid isn't anything like me that's kind of terrific then it can be less of less happy uh should we say um and i started thinking about i've thought about this for a long time because i I sort of grew up in a family with a certain amount of happiness and a certain amount of uh, very entrenched unhappiness that had been inherited, and that gets you thinking as a as a kid. You know, why is my why is one parent happy and the other parent unhappy, or why is it so difficult for my younger sibling uh, and maybe for my older sibling, but not for me in the middle? Uh, Is that is that some accident of birth order? Could it be that it was something that just you were born with, right? Could you actually be born with happiness and unhappiness? I don't know. You're born with certain talents and aptitudes. This is for sure. You're born with certain intelligence uh, that, that no amount of uh, uh, expansion will particularly improve. Um, maybe happiness is like that. If that's the case, then that's very grim indeed. And then, of course, for the parent, the difficulty is, is that terrible anxiety about seeing that there's very little you could do about anything. This uh, extraordinary line from uh, Norman Rush's novel, Mortals, is one that I come back to a lot. I just think about it a lot. Um, I wish I'd written it. Um, it's a line where he says, having children um, he talks about he talks about hellmouth, birth, the mouth of hell, sort of bursting through the life you put over it, and he says having children created, creates more thin space, thin spaces in the world for hellmouth to break through, uh, and I think that apprehension of the of, of thin space, uh, that, of terror really, um, is is uh, along with all the the joy uh, is is very much part of the thing of being a parent. Uh, and I thought that would be um, worth writing about. I'm glad also you noticed that, that yes, the novel begins with Alan going to his mother and ends with Alan deciding to uh, stick around in America with his daughter. So there's a formal uh, circle there, I hope. Um, I think I should, we should wrap it up. Thank. You. Oh, one more, yeah. Um, so James, um, you were talking just before about Critics criticizing you as a novelist,
2: and you being a critic. um, Do you think that any critics of your latest work have held you
0: to standards or pronouncements that you made years ago, and Ah. what do you think about that? I love these leading questions. You just fall into them. I fall into your lap, and I say, thank you, thank you for feeding me that nice one. Uh, I'll talk to you afterwards, and uh, money money will change hands. Uh, Yes. I mean, clearly that goes on a little bit. Uh, I knew what the template would be because the template was set up in in 2003 uh, when when my first novel came out. And the template is, uh, Wood has incredibly high standards, always calls for masterpieces, though that's actually less and less true as I get older and wiser. Uh, Calls for masterpieces. Is his uh, contribution a masterpiece? No, it is not. Uh, And then the review can... Proceed, uh, once that little machine has been set up can proceed to, uh, to, to go forward. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. A, a couple of, a couple of cases. It wasn't just that there was that template. It was also, it was, it was striking to be, to see things that I had written when I was about 30, which is now 22 years ago about, you know, how, you know, you know, what do you say when you're 30 or 28 or 27? You say stuff like, there hasn't been any decent fiction in Britain since 1945. Of course you do, you're young, right? Um, and then when you're 52, you think with shame and embarrassment that you said such things. Um, although maybe it's a little bit true. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, basically more shame than, than, than justice in the, in, the, in the remark. And then suddenly someone's saying, why shouldn't she? Well, would... In, you know, in 1998, he did say, or 1992, whatever it is, he did say, you know, there's the, basically there have only been two decent writers, you know, V.S. Naipaul and Muriel Spark since 1945. Though actually, as it turns out, not bad, right? Muriel Spark, V.S. Naipaul, Pinter, that's two or three others, and that's it. But then you, you think it, you think, first of all, God, did I say that? And then you think to yourself, but I don't agree with that anymore. And then, of course, the corollary is how could I, I mean, how could the review possibly go well for me after this, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, it couldn't go well for me. It's like, um, so yeah, uh, I think it's, you know, there's something very, I, it's wrong to use the word shrewd because it it it, it suggests a, a sort of um, uh, deliberation uh, where I think actually it's more like purity. But there's something, there is something in a way very shrewd about someone like Ishiguro who, has given no hostages to fortune like that. Uh, and also it means you can go to the fiction, right? It's tedious to go to Martin Amos's fiction and all, always know what he thinks about X, Y, and Z. Uh, sorry, wow, that was, uh, came in, you see, X, Y, and Z. Um, but, but you go to Ishiguro and there's no, there's no paper trail. There's no sort of you said this then and, and you gave this interview and said this. It's just, it's just what it is. And, and that seems quite appealing to me but hopeless, I mean. You know.
3: <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Thank you for your questions and contributions. Most of all, James Wood. Thank, Thank you so much. much for reading and talking. Thank you Thank very much. Thank you very
0: much, much for
2: me. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.